You may be seated. Well, this morning we continue our time in Advent. This is our second week in Advent. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember Tate, he introduced the subject to us. But if you missed it, or perhaps you just need a reminder, let me tell you what Advent means. Advent simply means the coming or the arrival. And this is the time of the year where we remember the coming and arrival of Jesus Christ through his birth. But it should also be a time where we look forward to Jesus' second coming. We know something today that the Old Testament prophets did not know about the Lord's coming. You see, we know that the Lord, while he came 2,000 years ago, we also know that he is going to come again. We know that in Jesus' first advent, he came as the suffering servant. And that first advent has already come and passed. And for most of us, when we think about Advent, we have in our mind Jesus' birth. We think about how Jesus came meek and mild to bring peace on earth and goodwill towards man. And this view has strongly shaped our view of the Lord's arrival, so much so that some of us might even view God as a helpless baby or, or even a gentle carpenter and teacher, but we might not go much further beyond that. And while that view of Advent isn't wrong, that view is far from being comprehensive and a full picture of what the Lord's arrival will be like. You see, like the scriptures that we heard even this morning from the Gospel of Luke, a day is coming when the Lord will return, but when he comes, he will not come like he did in his first advent. When Jesus returns, he will come in splendor and majesty, and all will see it, and no one will miss it. But some of us might not expect him to come this way. And it wouldn't be the first time people had misunderstandings about the Messiah's coming. In fact, when Jesus came in the first place in his first advent, even those who began to realize who Jesus was did not expect him to come in the way that he did. Even those who did believe that Jesus was the long-expected Messiah that the prophets foretold, even those who believed that he was the Christ, didn't suppose that he would come to bring peace on earth by dying in the place of sinners. But what they expected was that the Messiah, the Christ, would come to bring peace to the world by destroying the wicked. Take, for example, the first confession from Jesus' disciples concerning Jesus' identity. When Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Peter was certainly dead on right in his recognition of who Jesus was. But what Peter didn't understand about Jesus' advent was what he came to do. You see, Peter, he believed that Jesus was the warrior king who came to destroy the wicked once and for all. But when Jesus told Peter and the other disciples that he would go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be destroyed himself, well, Peter didn't like that. It's not what he expected the Messiah to come and do. And so Peter, he rebuked Jesus because he did not understand that Jesus Christ was the suffering servant. But just as Peter didn't understand what Jesus came to do in his first advent, for many of us, we have a similar problem when it comes to Jesus' second advent. When we think about the Lord's coming, we might like to think more of Jesus as the suffering servant than the conquering king. But if that's you, do not be deceived, because when Jesus returns, 
He will not come in humility and weakness, but instead he will come in splendor and strength to set things right and to punish the wicked and to give life to his people. This is part of the the creed that we confess every week. When we confess the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus, he ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. There, we're speaking of his second coming. And in our text this morning from the prophet Malachi, we're going to learn more about this coming day. Malachi chapter 4 is all about what he calls the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so if you prefer to have even a title for today's sermon, you can call it that, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Listen to how it's described in verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So what does this mean? What what does it mean for this day to be great and awesome? Well, every day when I come home from work, My wife and I, we exchange information about the day. We ask, how was your day? And if I were to say it was great, it was awesome, well, it would simply mean that I had a good day. Is that what Malachi means here in verse 5, that it's going to be a really good day? Well, no, not exactly. We need to understand what this word awesome really means. And this isn't a bad translation here in the ESV, but we have a problem today. And our problem is that we overuse the words great and awesome. Pumpkin pie is said to be awesome. But if pumpkin pie is awesome, what words do we have left to describe the day when the Lord will return? Understand what I mean by this. is that if everything is awesome, effectively nothing is awesome. The word awesome is not used to describe just a good day at work. The words great and awesome are used here to describe the one day where the Lord will come and he will right every wrong that has happened But let me develop this word even further. You see, depending on the translation that you might be looking at this morning, you might not even see the word awesome here at all. In the NIV and the King James Version, this day is described as the great and dreadful day, not the great and awesome day. In the NASB, it's translated as the great and terrible day. So how is it possible that the word awesome is translated as dreadful or terrible? Well, what I want us to see is this word awesome can have a very different meaning in the scriptures than how we often use it. Consider the same word that's used in the Old Testament in a few other places. See, when Jacob had his dream of the angels ascending and descending on the ladder into heaven, Jacob woke up and the scriptures say this. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Now, I want to point something out. The word afraid and the word awesome, that's the same word in Hebrew, But our English Bible says two different words. So we should understand something about this word awesome that's being used by Malachi. It's the very same word that we see here. This same word means afraid, dread, and terror. So we should understand this, that great and awesome day, it is going to be terrifying. Not meek and mild, not just goodwill towards all men, but for those who are evil, this will be a terrifying day. Consider again how the Lord is described in Deuteronomy 7, when God's people were afraid to enter the promised land because of their strong and awesome enemies, they were given this encouragement. Deuteronomy 7, 21, you shall not be in dread of them for the Lord your God is in your midst. A, here it is, great and awesome God. 
understand what's happening here in this encouragement. While they're afraid of their enemies because they're dreadful and terrible and awesome in strength, God is encouraging his people by saying, hey, I am in your midst. And if they're afraid, well, they haven't seen anything yet in comparison to my power and my glory, for it is great and terrifying. And in fact, sometimes the ESV even translates this same phrase simply like this. Hear it again in Deuteronomy 10. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that you have seen. Again, the very same word that we have here in our text this morning. And so with the biblical definition of the word awesome in mind, let us consider what it means for the Lord's coming to be great and awesome. The day when he comes will not just be a really good day, like a good day at work. For many, the Lord's coming will be absolutely terrifying. And so here's the point I want us to see, and then I'll show it to you in the text. When the Lord comes, it will be a terrifying day for the wicked. And this is hardly our notion of Advent that we normally have in our modern ears and minds. But don't swap your preference for Christmas cheer and a peaceful nativity scene for what the Lord has revealed to us through his word about his second coming. You see, when Jesus comes again, those who do not fear the Lord will be very afraid. The wicked will know true terror of a kind that no one has ever known before. And so listen to the way that Malachi describes this great and awesome day that is coming. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is a horrific scene, a terrifying scene, hardly meek and mild in a manger, but instead, this describes the wrath of God against all the wicked. So before we consider what this great and awesome day will be like here according to verse one, we need to consider who it is that this verse addresses because this is a different perspective than what we're gonna see in verse two and three. Malachi, Mal Malachi says, this scene of judgment and terror is reserved for what he calls the arrogant and the evildoers. Those who are arrogant are those who, they think too highly of themselves. And consequently, such people that are arrogant think far too little about God. And so they go on doing whatever feels right to them. And they do what is evil and wicked in the sight of God because they have no fear of him. These people's evil works are only further perpetuated even in this life because they believe that they are getting away with what they are doing. And it might seem like they're getting away with their deeds, but the great and awesome day that is described here is given in direct response to what has been said in the previous chapter. Listen to what Malachi told us earlier and listen to the doubts of God's people as they questioned the benefits of fearing God. The people here have said this, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. 
So notice what's happening. The people of God are beginning to think that it's not them who are blessed. It's not the the people who keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord that the Lord has his favor on, but instead it's the wicked who are blessed. It is those who are evil and arrogant who prosper. But what I want us to notice is the same descriptive words. They're arrogant and evildoers here in chapter three. It's the very same words that we see in chapter four, verse one. You see, these people, they are not in dread of God's judgment and they do not fear his name, but instead they go on doing what is evil and wicked. But what we should understand is God is giving us a promise here that if those arrogant people continue in their ways, you can know that they will get what is coming to them on that great and awesome day. Jesus himself said that on that day, there will be many who come to him saying, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, they do what is evil. They are lawless men and women. Again, listen to Jesus' own warning that he gave his disciples in the text that was read earlier in Luke 21. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day comes upon you suddenly like a trap. Well, some of you might say, well, Josh, what is grace for, but if not to pardon us from our sin? Well, I don't need to answer that question because Paul's done it for me already. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So understand this. When the Lord comes in his second advent, he will not come to save the arrogant and the evildoers. But instead, in his second coming, he will come to judge them. And listen to what that judgment will be like, as Malachi tells us. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Here, God's judgment is compared to fire. And we can understand the language of fire in many ways. You see, heat is even described to, to, to show us what our anger is like and what the divine anger is like. Consider the language of fire when it's applied to man's anger in Esther 1. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. And this the king became, at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Do you know what it's like to be hot with anger? If so, well then you know, in a sense, what God feels towards our sin And so hear it again now, this time not the anger of man that burns, but the anger of God that burns. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. And so what we need to see here is God is not apathetic towards our sin, nor is he apathetic to the one who commits great transgressions even small ones. But God is enraged by sin and his anger burns against those who are evil. Sometimes we hear things like this. Well, 
God, he hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Psalm 5 tells us, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. So this psalm and Malachi's prophecy that we have heard this morning are abundantly clear on this. God does not just hate the sin. He hates those who are evil. And when he returns, he will not just be apathetic towards them. He will not turn a blind eye towards them, but instead he will destroy them. Malachi, he develops this image of God's anger further. He says, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. So he compares the anger of God, not just to a fire, but to a burning oven. And so picture, if you will, the king Nebuchadnezzar and his fury and rage when his servants disobeyed his command. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down to the golden image according to his decree, Nebuchadnezzar, he was angry. And in his anger, he had them thrown into the oven. Now, this is a terrifying thing for any man, for a king to be angry with you and in his anger decide to kill you. But how much more terrifying will it be for those who fall under the wrath of the king of kings? Those three friends had no need to fear Nebuchadnezzar, for they rightly feared their great and awesome God who would deliver them from their fiery grave. But understand this, on that great and awesome day, there will be no one to deliver the evildoers from the fiery wrath of God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This burning wrath of God against the wicked will entirely annihilate those who do what is evil. After the Lord comes, Malachi describes the wicked as having no root and no branch. So consider what this means for us this morning. The wrath of God will consume the tree down to the very root. This last spring, I made it my goal to annihilate all the weeds from my lawn. You see, I have a clover problem. And so I sprayed every chemical that I could get on those weeds to keep them from coming back. But if you were to look at my lawn today, you would see that I still have a clover problem. Because even though those weeds looked dead for a few weeks, I failed to kill the weeds down to the root. And so in no time at all, they grew back. So understand what this means in light of Malachi's prophecy. When the Lord returns, he will bring an absolute end to the wicked. He will destroy the wicked down to the root. And when he judges the wicked on that great and awesome day, his judgment will be final. There will be no second chances, no comebacks, no redos. For there will be no root that is left when his fury consumes those who are evil. But it's not just the root that will be consumed on that great and awesome day, for he will leave them neither root nor branch. Even if I were to say, destroy those weeds down to the root, but I were to leave the branches throughout my lawn, I would have a different problem. But it would effectively be the same problem. You see, in those branches, there are seeds. 
And if those seeds are left, they will go back into the ground and come up again. But when the Lord comes, he will completely destroy the wicked and all the fruit of their lives, such that there will be no trace, no remnant, and no memory of them. Listen to Job 18. His roots dry up beneath. His branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. Such will it be for the wicked on that great and awesome day. You see, some of us are far too concerned about our reputation in this life. And in so doing, we're completely arrogant and evil and give no recognition to God. Men have desired to be remembered, to be honored for their work, but the scriptures are clear. The wicked will not stand on that great and awesome day. So if in this life we do not pay any attention to this warning, then know this, our life will be completely meaningless. Now this is bad news. And it would only be bad news if Malachi stopped here. But the gospel is good news. And the coming of the Lord is good news of great joy. Because when the Lord comes, it will be an awesome day for the righteous. And now by awesome, I do not mean terrifying, like I said earlier, but by awesome, I mean it will leave us in awe in the presence of God because we will be in his midst and he will be our light. And on that great and awesome day, the righteous will have ample reason to rejoice in the Lord's return. Listen to the way Malachi puts it. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So I want us to notice something. This is the very same day as the day that was described in verse one. It's still that great and awesome day, but there's a radically different experience for those who fear the name of the Lord compared to those who are arrogant and wicked. So too, this similar day is also depicted by a similar image. Very same day, excuse me, a similar image. And it's that of a fire. But this time it's not a consuming fire, but it is the sun of righteousness whose effect is healing compared to that of destruction. You see, the image of fire can serve different purposes. A fire rightly placed in a fireplace on a cold and dark winter day is a welcoming sight. But when the food on your stovetop catches fire, well, it's not so welcoming. So too, the rising sun will be a welcome sight to the weary saints, while the burning wrath of God and his anger will be a terrible thing that would cause the sinners and the wicked to tremble. So let us consider the distinction of the righteous from the wicked for only a moment. As opposed to the arrogance of the evildoers, the righteous are described as those who fear the name of God. That's completely different than those who are arrogant and do what is wicked in the sight of God. And I want to point out that the, the word fear here in verse 2 is nearly identical to the same word of awesome in verse 5. But compared to that of the wicked, those who fear the Lord have no reason to be afraid on that great and awesome day. For the righteous, that day will come like the rising sun. And I don't know anyone who's ever been afraid of a sunrise. 
but rather a sunrise is an object of beauty and delight. A rising sun for those who wake up early just to see it is a, an image of those who have eager anticipation for that to come. And so Malachi, he uses what is a common image to all of us to describe that which no man has ever seen. And certainly we can appreciate the imagery, especially in these wet months of the Pacific Northwest. As the winter months linger on, we long to feel the warm rays of the sun again. And so too, Malachi says, with the rising of this sun of righteousness will come healing. And we can understand this to some degree, even by just looking at our own sun. Those who suffer from seasonal depression know what it means for the sun to come with healing in its wings. For the rays of the warm yellow sun have a way of melting the cold and winter blues. And it's not just seasonal depression that goes away with the rising sun, but even our flu season takes place in the fall and winter months. But as the spring and summer come, it's as if the flu retreats. But let us not worship the glory of the sun, but instead let us learn what the heavens are declaring about the glory of God. Because this image is not describing the sun itself, but it is describing the coming of the Lord of glory. And so when the Lord comes, we should understand that he will come with healing in his wings. As I consider the condition of some of us weary saints even this morning, I can only imagine how sweet this is to those of you who are unable to walk, unable to see, unable to go a day without chronic pain, unable to shake the, the wounds of, of emotional hurt and betrayal, so I want us to hear the good news that God has promised us here in this word. There is coming a day when the Lord will heal every ailment. And when he comes, he will come bringing healing in his wings. The saints will not be bound by wheelchairs or walkers, for there is a day where he will heal those who are lame. There is a day coming where those whose sight has failed will be restored again, for he will give sight to the blind. When the Lord comes, he will come like the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And listen to the effect of this healing when it is applied to the saints. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And here's the effect you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I don't know what this looks like when calves leap from a stall, but I have a golden retriever, <laughs> and I know what it looks like when he's let out of his kennel. And he bounds with joy and runs throughout the house and stomps on my feet, but it's a sweet and welcome sight. Or perhaps we can even consider the feeling of finishing the last day of school after the final test is completed and after that bell rings, all of the responsibility that tied a student down are cut off and they are free for the rest of the summer. Now these are only images and they pale in comparison to what it will be like on that great and awesome day when the Lord comes like the rising sun of righteousness with healing in its wings. But it's not done yet. For the Lord said, you shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So what is described here is, is the great reversal. You see Malachi, he's writing 
to warn Israel for their wickedness, for they are the ones who are oppressing the righteous. But here, something else happens. You see, those strong trees that were once oppressing the wicked are now burnt to ashes, and now they are but the dust under the feet of those leaping calves. And so it will be on that day of righteousness. The wicked will be consumed and the righteous will be healed and liberated. And the sum of all this, what is leaping? It's the description of joy. Some of us keep a straight face far too much. For in this day, there will be joy, everlasting joy, a joy that surpasses anything that this world could ever offer. So at this point, two questions remain that I want to highlight. First, when will this great and awesome day come to pass? And second, on that day, where will we stand? Will, will we be among the liberated leaping calves that have been healed from the rising sun? Or will, will we be the remnant of ashes that are left from God's burning anger against the wicked? Well, to consider these two questions, let's read the last three verses. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see this prophecy here at the end, it gives us two instructions that can be summed up by looking back and looking forward. Looking back, that is to say, you remember. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses. This command is the very thing that Israel has failed to do. This is his, this is his word given to those who have been lawless and wicked. Remember the law. Remember the good, righteous decrees that God has given you. Don't be like those arrogant evildoers, but instead be like the ones who fear the Lord, for he is coming, and when he is, it will be a dreadful day for those who do not remember the law. So look back and remember the law. And now look forward, he says, and behold, a day is coming when he will send the prophet Elijah. And when that prophet Elijah comes, you can be sure that the great and awesome day is soon to be had. And so we are told to look backward and to look forward, back at the law and forward waiting for the prophet. Now, is this instruction that Malachi gave to his original hearers, instruction that we should listen to today? Well, no, not exactly. It certainly was given for our benefit and instruction though. We heard it earlier in Romans 15, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so the effect of this is to give us this hope and encouragement for the day when he comes. It is instruction that is for our benefit, but this instruction should not be followed too strictly. For one, we live at a different time than his original hearers. And that prophet that he told us to look forward to, actually has already come. He came in the past. Listen to Luke 1, 13. 
And the angel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you should call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And listen to this here. This is what's important. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so what we should understand is this. We are, we are no longer looking forward for the prophet Elijah to come for he has already come, which means this, the great and awesome day is already upon us. The great and awesome day has already dawned when the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Jesus was and he is the son of righteousness who comes with healing in his wings. It's no wonder why the apostle John introduced Jesus like this. In him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And we know that light is the Lord Jesus Christ, the word incarnate who was born that first Christmas. And so today we are not looking forward to Elijah's coming for he has already come in John the Baptist. But instead we should heed then by looking back at John the Baptist and heed the instruction that he gave. For he said to get our eyes off him, he no longer said, behold, a prophet is coming. But instead he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so don't take this instruction here given by the prophet too seriously when he's telling us to look for the prophet Elijah, but instead take the word of John the Baptist, the prophet who was said to come and listen to him as he pointed to Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. But this might lead us to a problem with Malachi's prophecy. You see, the great and awesome day of the Lord has already come for the prophet came and soon after would come the light of the world. And so we might have a problem because we look around us and we see sickness among the righteous and the wicked and the arrogant have only multiplied. It's as if Malachi 3, what he said, they're, they're blessed and they prosper, those wicked and arrogant people. It is as if they are only going on from bad to worse. So then how can we make sense of Malachi's prophecy? Well, it's owing to the fact that we know something today and this side of redemptive history that the prophets did not know. Through Jesus, we have learned that he will come again to finish that which he has began. In his first advent, Jesus came to forgive us of our sins. But a day is coming again where he will not simply forgive, but instead he will judge the wicked once and for all, just as Malachi said would happen. 
And so what are we to do? Well, we don't have to look for the prophet anymore for he's already come and he told us to look to Jesus instead. But how about the law then? Should we remember the law? Well, yes, only in part though. You see, the law is good. But for as good as the law is, it has never saved a single person. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. And so yeah, look at the law. Do look at the law. Remember the law. But know that no amount of law remembering and law keeping will ever save you. But instead, allow the law to have its effect on you so that you might see yourself and your sin and your depravity and your need for forgiveness. So does this mean we should just throw the law away? Well, no, no, not at all. Paul certainly didn't. Listen to Paul. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Don't throw the law away. Delight yourself in the law. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So don't throw away the law. Remember the law. Meditate on the law day and night. Paul certainly did. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so as we look at the law, it's going to force us to look at ourselves. And as we look at ourselves, we will only find that we fall short of all the law's requirements. So then what are we to do? Not look for the prophet. Don't just remember the law, but do that which both the law and the prophets do. They point us to Christ. That's exactly what it does for Paul. After saying he longs to obey God's word, but is unable to, the light breaks forth in Romans 8. and says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So look back to the prophet. Don't look forward. He's already come. Look back to the prophet and listen to him. And he doesn't say, behold, here I am. But instead he says, behold, there he is, the Lamb of God. And remember the law. But as you look at the law, you will only find yourself to be wicked and deserving of death. And so even as the law points to yourself and your inadequacies, do what McShane says. For every look at yourself, Take 10 looks at Christ. The prophet pointed to Jesus Christ and our inability to keep the law does the same. And so this Advent, look to Christ's first coming and remember that he has died so that you might live. And for those who have gone on in arrogance doing what is evil, stop going in your ways and repent 
and look to Jesus and put your faith in him so that you might be saved. And for each of us, not just those who are wicked and evil, but for even myself, we all ought to do this very thing that John instructed. Behold the Lamb of God and repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so here we are, this Advent, waiting patiently till our Savior comes again. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. The great and awesome day when Jesus returns will be here soon. He has promised that he will. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may we not just be hearers of your word, but doers. Lord, give us your spirit so that we might actually delight in your word. It's impossible for us to love you apart from this work of the spirit. And so even now, Lord, increase our appetite for you. And Lord, convict us of sin. Cause for us to fear your name. Cause for us to remember your law. And all the more, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Forgive us of our sins. Make us more holy. And come soon, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.